Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not ready. It's the various factions under him, and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit, and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There's certain key things that we want from India, and there's certain key things that they want from us. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme, Lizzie. It's that time of year. The lists are coming for us. There's a list. A Christmas list? (laughs) A Christmas list, if only. Uh, But I feel like any second now we're going to be getting to our songs of the year. But today we're talking about the word of the year, according to Merriam-Webster, the diction maker Mm, anyway. Someone's scraping the barrel. Go on. It's authentic, very relevant to politics, of course. Uh, Big discussion word this year, the dictionary maker says, because that the rise of essentially artificial intelligence and misinformation online has made it more difficult to assess what's real and what's fake. I have to say, I only have one dimension, so it's impossible (laughs) to be anything other than authentic. And this is why I think you should never get Botox if you work in news. Shade. Oh, Interesting. Okay, I'm not sure that I have anything to say about that <laughs> as I feel my forehead. Um, the, the Look, it's an interesting question because, of course, it's very central to how politicians present themselves as well. But it's also become one of the big debates about how you voters are going to be sorting the most important issues from the less important ones coming up to an election. We know that social media has taken a bit of a turn for the dark this year and made discussions online all that more uh, difficult. And there's a question too about how much authenticity we want to be able to see from our politicians as well. You know, don't we want them to be states states people and, and showing an example of leadership? Well, quite, I don't think that this is anything new. Jeremy Corbyn was someone who the word authentic was t- applied to a lot, him and his allotment patch Mm. and then Keir Starmer was presented as the opposite of that in a way that uh, was meant to be good but then he's now rolling up his sleeves and telling us about how he's the son of a toolmaker and trying to be more authentic and Rishi Sunak's wheeling out his wife at party conference to show the real him. I'm having flashbacks to the photos during the World Cup actually which is a particular form of uh, political trauma I think of um, politicians uh, trying to look um, as natural as possible and what were clearly extremely posed photos. Anyway, um, let's turn to back to the present and Rishi Sunak finding himself in the midst of a diplomatic spat, perhaps around authenticity, after cancelling a meeting with Greece's Prime Minister at the last minute. Sunak had been due to meet Kyriakos Mitsotakis today, but according to one senior Conservative Party official, the meeting was scrapped because of the Greek leader's comments at the weekend over the Parthenon marbles. Well, for more, let's bring in our Athens Bureau Chief, Satiris Nikas, for more. Satiris, great to have you with us on the programme. What did the Greek Prime Minister say that was so controversial? Would you like your viewers to be able to see half of Mona Lisa? That was his line in uh, an interview (laughs) that he gave uh, on BBC on Sunday. And uh, apparently that was enough, uh, probably along with the other comments, on uh, Parthenon's cultures and uh, the reunification that uh, Greece is pursuing. Uh, uh, Those comments seem to be enough 
for the cancellation, for the decision to cancel the meeting. And so what's Downing Street saying about this? Well, as you mentioned, they say that the comments that Mitsotakis, the Greek prime minister, made during the weekend, uh, you know, were not in line with... It seems uh, a bit extreme to cancel the meeting, though. Uh, if you're asking me, yes. <laughs> and uh, especially if you take into account the fact that those comments have been made in the past too many times from Greeks. Not only from the Greek Prime Minister, the current Greek Prime Minister, but it's the Greek position since since I remember, I ever remember. I mean, since 50s, 60s or something like this. So, yes, it's, it's a bit weird the fact that now they decided that those comments are provocative or whatever uh, are enough to cancel the meeting. Yeah, Satiris, I'm, I'm not sure the last time that I saw uh, annoyance in a political statement, but it was the, in the statement from Kyriakos Mitsotakis was, I express my annoyance for the fact yes. the British Prime Minister cancelled our scheduled meeting just hours before it was due to take place. Now, this, of course, is a very long-running dispute over the, the Parthenon sculptures. There had been some progress in recent months in warming relations. Remind us where things were before the events of this weekend. Indeed, it is. The British Museum and the Acropolis Museum are in talks the past almost two years, and it seems that they are trying to formulate a solution that will uh, will see Parthenon sculptures coming back to Athens. Uh, but uh, the dispute is still remains remains on, on you know how they're gonna get it the Acropolis Museum Greece doesn't want to uh, to have a deal that uh, will see the ownership of those cultures remaining to the British Museum and obviously the British Museum doesn't want it so there there are discussion about a loan um, or about uh, a partnership what they call it uh, so for these cultures to come in Athens and other other artifacts to go to the British Museum. But, uh, you know, the main point, we, of course, we don't know all the details, but the main point is that, you know, there is a real effort this time to have a solution. Now, this development will will, will pose this, um, uh, this discussion, these negotiations. We don't really know, but it's definitely not uh, to a positive direction. Satiris, to clarify, the reason I say it seems extreme is because surely this is just one of a million things that the two leaders could have talked about, not least cooperation on migration. And we're told that stopping the boats is supposed to be one of the UK Prime Minister's top priorities. So how is this going to affect collaboration on that issue? Yes, because uh, Greece also has an issue with uh, illegal migration, as as you can imagine, uh, with we have many uh, migrants passing the Aegean Sea illegally. So, you know, there, especially on migration, there was room for collaboration between the two countries. Um, I feel that these kind of talks will stall for a while until something happens and, you know, negotiations and uh, relations come back to normality, the normality that there were. How, how important an issue is this around the Parthenon sculptures in Greece? Is it something that is a kind of a high priority for the public there? You, I wouldn't say it's a high priority issue, but it's a, a long-standing demand from the Greek governments and the Greek people. Um, they just want, we, you know, Greeks just want 
the sculptures to come back to return and be, you know, in, in the museum, in the Acropolis Museum, which is right under the Parthenon. So, you know, it's an issue that Greeks do care, but I wouldn't say that it's a high priority issue. And you know better than us who Greece's allies are. How is this going to affect the UK's relations with them? I'm not sure that it's going to be, you know, a breaking point. Uh, I don't feel that this is going to be. And to be honest, uh, I'm not getting these messages from anyone right now. But definitely, you know, having the prime minister going officially and saying that he's annoyed, it doesn't help. We're, of course, very focused on the, the the possibility of where the next election will leave British politics as well. The Labour Party has a, a huge lead in the polls over the Conservatives. Is there any sense in Greece that perhaps Keir Starmer leading the Labour Party might shift the position on this for Greece? Well, uh, pra- Greek Prime Minister Mitsotakis uh, had a meeting with uh, UK's Labour Party leader and uh, actually he, uh, his team got the call for the cancellation of the meeting with Sunak uh, when his meeting with uh, Starmer was ending. So, you know, the issue was discussed in Mitsotakis-Starmer's meeting. Um, As far as we know, both sides presented their arguments, and that was it. Definitely having, you know, two leaders discussing it is better than not having the meeting. Indeed. Okay. thank you so much for bringing us up to date. That's our Athens Bureau Chief there, Satirius Nikas, joining us uh, with the latest on those discussions ongoing after the cancellation of the meeting between Rishi Sunak and Kyriakos Mitsotakis. Well, the UK's Global Investment Summit at Hampton Court this week is part of Rishi Sunak's plans to attract more cash to the UK. Big business names rolled up in force, but will it really move the dial for the economy or the election? To discuss, we're joined now by Andrew Griffith, Minister of State for the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. Minister, thanks for joining us. You're at the Royal Society today. You're announcing a partnership with the company behind the life sciences firm Moderna, of course, the one that developed one of the COVID-19 vaccines. I wonder how much, how many jobs this is going to create? Well, good morning. It's lovely to be uh, to be with you, uh, Lizzie. Um, this is a great proof point. I am in the Royal Society um, and I'm a, a, agreeing today at an MOU with flagship pioneering, which is, as you say, the US uh, venture capital, life sciences venture capital company behind Moderna. It's probably it's best known for but overall, it's founded over 100 different scientific companies, spin-outs and scale-ups uh, worth over $90 billion. Uh, so it's a great vote of confidence uh, that they have chosen the UK to be their first office outside of the US. Uh, a real vote of confidence in our life sciences, which is the third largest life sciences ecosystem outside of the US and China, two really big domestic markets, uh, but the UK really punching above its weight uh, internationally. So good proof point of what we saw yesterday at the Prime Minister's Global Investment Summit. Do we have the right skilled people, though, Minister, to be able to fill the jobs that are going to be created by this investment? Well, I think I think all the evidence is that we do have really good skills. That's why global investors beat a path to our door. They see the UK as a really good market in which to invest. Um, but also, we've got a very strong base in science of all kinds, including life sciences. About uh, 13% of UK graduates in tertiary education graduate on things like natural sciences, math, statistics, and that's the second highest proportion 
uh, amongst any country, I think, after only India. Um, so there's always more we can do. Uh, we, we talk a lot about how we've got some of the most progressive visa programs, things like the global high potential visa. Uh, people can come here if they graduate from any one of the top 30 universities. I don't think that's always fully understood. Uh, and it's part of my job and, and those of us who are in these very market facing ministerial roles to make sure people understand just how open the UK is to high skilled, high potential migration. It's always a you know, as we see every day, it's a big, big topic politically, uh, but I don't think anyone's against that sort of very high end uh, immigration and, and, and people moving here to make good use of their skills. Minister, what economists tell me is that the UK's presence in its main areas of specialisation, like AI, like synthetic biology, is pretty narrow and it involves relatively few companies. So one deal like this, the one you're announcing today, it's not going to turn the tide on years of stagnant foreign direct investment, is it? Well, no, I, look, I think I don't agree with that premise, to be completely honest, Lizzie. Um, we are the uh, highest destination for foreign direct investment in Europe. We have typically in most sectors, including life sciences, uh, more than France and Germany combined. We have thousands of startups, scale ups, over 100 unicorns, one of the only countries on the planet. Uh, again, only after the US and China to have done that. Um, but we've got more to do. You know, it'd be foolish to say that, you know, the world isn't competitive. We've got to put our best foot forward. That's why I was delighted to transition from the work I'd done in trying to mobilise capital in the city to unleash a lot of capital from things like UK pension schemes now into, you know, the department that is investing in our future and allowing people to deploy that capital in areas like life sciences, quantum, space, robotics. Um, we're putting our money where our mouth is as a government. Uh, so last week in the autumn statement, the Chancellor announced another half a billion pounds for life sciences manufacturing here in the UK. And that was one of a long list of measures uh, to invest in, in the high growth parts of the UK economy. So I, I don't agree with the premise, but I do agree that there's always more we can do. It's a competitive world and it's really, really important, as we saw yesterday at the Global Investment Summit, that we put our best foot forward. Well, I'm interested with perhaps then th with your eye on the events of the autumn statement last week, and of course your your former job in the Treasury as well. What you made of the approach from the Chancellor when it came to things like you know cutting taxes and implementing business the full expensing may, being made permanent as a business tax cut as well. Lots of fears about what that's going to mean in terms of the public spending trajectory, particularly the cuts that are going to be needed in real terms to public services from next year. Well, there is a huge opportunity. All of the technologies that, that I talk about and our department talks about, most notably AI, artificial intelligence, but advanced computing power, these are all great productivity tools. And so, again, not to fully accept the premise, you know, it's important that we get every, every pound of uh, value from public spending. Uh, and when we think about some of the biggest domains that we spend that on, whether it's you know the opportunity in education or in healthcare with the NHS, uh, these technologies can make us all more productive uh, with the amount of money we spend. At the same token, we heard uh, yesterday a lot from global investors about their, their value certainty and things like being able to make full expensing permanently gives real certainty to those who are looking to invest in the UK 
versus other markets. You'll surely agree with this premise. The Office for Budget Responsibility says that the tax burden is rising. A Delta poll survey says most British voters don't expect the tax cuts announced by Jeremy Hunt to improve their finances or the UK economy. Are you worried that the autumn statement isn't going to move the dial politically? Well, look, my, my job as minister is to do everything I can to help the UK economy grow. Uh, that is making the best use of our great scientists, our innovators, our founders, connecting them with capital, whether that's from domestic sources like people investing themselves in their ISAs uh, or our brilliant pension funds in the UK, uh, and then operating within an ecosystem that means they have the best skills the best tax environment and the best regulations to compete. So with, with respect, that's that's my day job. Um, if we can show that we've got a path to grow the economy, I think the British people I- innately understand that you can't spend your way to growth, right? So, you know, you can, you can create the right environment. You can make sure that we're uh, attractive to international investors. What you can't do is simply uh, make unfunded spending promises that will push up inflation, that will push up interest rates. Uh, and that I don't think is, is when the British people eventually go to the polls uh, and hover over where to cast their vote. I think that the party that's got a clear plan to grow the economy uh, is the one that will prevail. But it, that's a hard message to sell on the doorsteps when the election campaign does start, you know, telling people that, you know, we're sorry that everything's much more expensive and you feel like you've less money in your pockets. But you to say that you've got a plan when the Conservative Party has been in power for as long as it has is going to surely make things very difficult to say. Well, it's more than a plan. Um, I'm talking today about the launch of flagship pioneering, uh, one of the biggest investors in the life sciences in the world, coming to London, opening its only outside of the US office. And that follows on the back of uh, around 30 billion of pledges and promises and commitments uh, that some of the biggest investors in the world made in the UK. Again, more than any other country in Europe. So we're a real destination. So it's not just words. It's not just plans and strategies. It is actually delivery. Uh, And look, I'm not someone who has spent most of my career in politics. Most of my life was in business. Um, But I learned then, as well as in in government, not to underestimate the innate good sense of British people or British consumers. They they know that ultimately um, governments that try and spend their way uh, out of difficult positions uh, such as we saw with COVID, such as we saw with Ukraine, you know, ultimately uh, are not doomed to succeed in this globally competitive world. Finally, Minister, we've been talking about the Parthenon sculptures, the Elgin marbles, whatever you want to call them, this morning, the cancelled meeting between the Greek Prime Minister and Rishi Sunak. Do we really want to be shutting down meetings with other country leaders when surely now is a time to cooperate on investment? Well, it's always a good time to cooperate on investment. That's what I, the Secretary of State uh, and ministers across government do. So I don't want to comment on any one individual case, but it's right that we're out there collaborating. Um, It's right that yesterday at the Global Investment Summit in historic Hampton Court, you know, the world's leading investors, including many sovereign wealth funds who are choosing where to invest their country's future capital, all gathered uh, and we're all very upbeat uh, and very keen to hear about the prospects of the UK.
Okay, Andrew Griffith, Minister of State at the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology, thanks very much for joining us on Bloomberg UK Politics with your views uh, on all of those stories. Lizzie, the, of course, economic backdrop still pretty uh, in focus, I suppose. We've had the, you know, those new shop price inflation figures out today showing that shop price inflation is falling, but you've also been keeping an eye on an important committee hearing that's happening in Westminster. Yes, the Office for Budget Responsibilities officials have been testifying in Parliament. Interesting uh, before we talk about that though Stephen uh, to think about the disparity between their forecasts and the Bank of England's forecasts in fact Dave Ramsden the Deputy Governor of the Bank of England was on Bloomberg TV and radio earlier today saying it doesn't really matter everything's subdued in terms of growth and the outlook forward so not quite the rosy picture that Andrew Griffith was just pa- painting there uh, in terms of the outlook for the UK economy Yeah, but indeed this, of course, as we're thinking about how the official forecasts from the OBR are going to go down in the questioning of the Treasury Select Committee. Indeed. The Office for Budget Responsibility Chair, Richard Hughes, has been speaking about the impact of the autumn statement on inflation. He says, I don't think that the impact of the policy package in this autumn statement makes a material difference to the outlook for inflation or prices. It does make a small one, however... Ah, Lizzie, I love having you here. We are doing 12 jobs at once, uh, hosting the programme and also keeping an eye on everything that's happening uh, on the UK economy as well. Well, let's get another point of view on the UK as an investment destination now. While the Hampton Court event was targeting big names, a new survey of early stage European investors has found that the UK is a leading destination for their capital, but it faces stiff competition from its neighbours. The study was carried out for Digital Catapult, a not-for-profit organisation that promotes the digital sector in the UK. We spoke to its CEO, Jeremy Silver, about some of the issues that it raises for the government. We looked at uh, at sort of five major countries across Europe, including the UK, so Spain, France, Germany, and the in the Netherlands, um, and uh, and the UK as a priority market is definitely down on uh, previous years' uh, evaluations of this. Um, and we spoke to about two hundred and fifty early stage investors across those those uh, in each of those countries, uh, and. The impression that we're getting is that uh, the UK is still probably the lead territory in Europe, um, but our uh, competitors are definitely at our heels. What do those investors see as the particular strengths or weaknesses of the UK market? Well, I think what the, the UK has always had a very strong research base and the strength of UK universities and uh, the graduates of those universities, I think, have always um, uh, pr- provided really strong input into startup companies around the UK. Uh, and in particular, uh, as obviously everybody's aware, AI and particularly generative AI and, uh, and, and associated technologies uh, at the moment are really hot. And the UK is really strong from that point of view. So that, I think, is still keeping us uh, ahead of the competition. Uh, and interestingly, some of the some of the things uh, that have been buzzwords in the past, like the metaverse and spatial computing, uh, still represent big investment priorities for, uh, for European investors. Mm, OK. Is sourcing talent post-Brexit a problem for digital businesses? It certainly has become more of a barrier. So the UK became a very attractive location um, for European investors, but also European startups. So a lot of founders moved to London um, over the last 10 or 15 years. We've seen a a large number of people um, coming here to set up companies. And obviously, uh, the changes that that Brexit brought about um, have put barriers in the way there and have made that more difficult. Um, The ability to be able to source talent internationally through the use of visas um, uh, has become a more difficult obstacle, uh, both for people wanting to enter the territory and also uh, for within the market. 
is the UK government doing enough then? Is it putting in place the right economic backdrop to attract these investors, keep these investors and, as you say, grow the businesses as much as possible to help grow the UK economy? Is the government uh, creating the right backdrop? I think the government has, has been very active in this area. And, and although the conference earlier this week was not aimed at the early stage sector, it was much more about uh, established business and, and uh, traditional inward investment at, at a larger scale. Uh, the, the kinds of tax incentives for early stage investors, the EIS scheme, the, even the SEIS scheme, uh, the R&D tax credits, that, that combination has been a very powerful attractor over the last 10 or 15 years. It hasn't evolved much. Uh, and there were changes to the R&D tax credit made by the Chancellor last November, which, which were unhelpful, I think, for this sector. Um, but, uh, our competitors are starting to see how those sorts of uh, incentives work. Is the UK focus enough on building the skills, um, the lifelong learning, but also the learning at school age to create the kinds of business leaders and, and tech workers that the UK needs? That's a really interesting question. The, the, the reality is that almost every business, large or small, is experiencing an enormous skills gap. Um, I was talking to a representative of a major uh, defence company recently who reckoned that they needed 100,000 graduates uh, with digital skills uh, in, in the next, over the next five years, uh, and they're not alone in that. Um, that, that is uh, pressure on everyone. Uh, and obviously, the ability of, of all of those people to be sourced out of the UK um, in the short term uh, is, is limited. And that's why uh, the, the issues like how to make the visa uh, to allow people to come and work here uh, an easier, lower obstacle, uh, lower barrier uh, to entry is a really important one. That was Jeremy Silver, CEO of Digital Catapult, speaking earlier to myself and to Caroline Hepger. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Tiwa Adebayo and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.